Joining us on the show today, Faisal Suziwala is with us from Remax Twin City Realty online at homeshack.com. And you can call them at 519-624-5555. Uh, first part of the show, we, we uh, discussed where the market <laughs> is and what inventory is like. Now, in our, our second segment, let's, let's take a look at uh, people who are looking to invest. Well, what's the outlook for investors in this current market? The outlook is still strong for investors if they can find the right type of property. So there's commercial properties, residential properties, there's land investment, uh, there's, there's industrial properties. So it just depends on what someone's appetite is right now. When it comes to residential, we're finding that the average single family home value has exceeded what would normally make sense on a cash flow perspective for an investor. So to explain that, uh, there was a time that you could buy a townhome not that long ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, for 500000 or 550000 The rental income on that would have been about $2,200 per month. And given that income, you would pretty much be cash flow neutral. So you're not really making any money. You may be out of pocket, maybe 50 bucks a month or something like that, but you were breaking even. Um, you were buying based on appreciation not so much based on cash flow or monthly income. And we've talked about that in the past, you know, why buy on cash flow or why buy on appreciation? So because we've realized some great appreciation over the last 18 months, the value of that townhome is probably closer to $700,000 today. However, the rental income has not gone up. The rents are still around that twenty-two dollars to $2,300. So an investor is going to think twice about spending $700,000 on investment property only to get the same amount they could have, say, when they spent $550,000. So, and we have, we've had that whole happen over the years where you know, rental um, rates were $1,500 a month on an average townhome. And all of a sudden, those rates jumped up as a... Um, because there was just no inventory of rentals available. Now we're starting to see a little bit more of that come in with the new construction completing and people who had bought homes starting to, um, to, to, to rent those homes out. So commercial properties and industrial properties are basically sold on a cap rate. So a capitalization rate, it's the return on your full investment. So it was acceptable to get between five to six percent cap right now we're seeing that capitalization rate drop to somewhere around three and a half to four percent because people just want to be able to park their money into some form of real estate and again with the interest rates going down the cost of carrying has gone down so it's just making sense for people to start shifting their money into vehicles that will still give them a decent rate of return and still well above what you would get if your money was just sitting in the bank right now. And then the last vehicle is land. Now, if you're purchasing land, it's a waiting game. It's banking, basically. You're buying land. It's, you're not earning any income on it, but you're counting on the appreciation. You're counting on development. So you've got to be mindful of the zoning. What does the servicing look like? What is the official plan in the city? And, you know, people will often look 10 years out and say, where will development end up? If I can invest in a piece of land 
that's going to be developable in 10 years, and I can buy it at a reasonable rate right now, then I'm going to realize some amazing gains over time. So if your client came to you today and said, Faisal, I want to start investing in real estate, where, where would you tell them to start? What would your advice be? If they can purchase a rental property, and, and I'm not a big fan of multi-residential type of properties because of the uh, management associated with that. So if you're a passive investor, you like to have one tenant to handle or a few tenants to handle in individual buildings, and you want to have a good exit strategy, if you want to sell the property, you're not looking for another investor, a single family type of residential is good to buy. If you can buy something with uh, an additional unit, where you can rent out the basement or a secondary unit as, such as a duplex, but you're not managing multiple tenants within the, within the same roof, then there is some value in that. But you've really got to monitor what the income level is and what price you're paying. And you have to remember that when you want to exit something like that, it's unlikely that a, a family who wants to move in uh, for their own owner occupancy will purchase something like that. So you're basically becoming a landlord in that type of a building. Um, if you can put together enough funds to buy a commercial property like a plaza, an industrial unit, there's value in that. Um, it's something that a lot of investors, mainstream investors stay away from, not because it's a bad investment, it's just because they don't understand it. And lastly, if you're going to purchase land, the idea of mortgaging is not possible. You've got to be able to come up with cash. And in those situations, I recommend that people syndicate, you know, get a few people together, get a group together, pool your funds together and buy land in that format. So you're not putting financing on there. And remember, there's no income on land. So you've got to be able to hold that land without uh, wanting your money back very quickly. Other than buying land, are there options for people who don't want to be someone's landlord? How can they invest? Um, it's, it's difficult. I mean, look, buying your first home is a form of investment. So if, if, if nothing at all, you should purchase your first home. Even if that means you purchase that home and you don't really need to live there, you don't really need that home. You're better to have your money in this vehicle because then you're going to enjoy the appreciation that happens as opposed to sitting on the sidelines, looking at the market saying, oh, I wish I got in five years ago. Or, oh, I wish I got in last year. Rent it out, buy it, rent it out. And when you're ready to move in, and I say this to a lot of young people that are you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, may have some money saved up or have parents or family that can help them, like get into a property, even if it's one property and have it so that at some point, that will become your home, or at least it'll be something you can sell to buy your home. And when it comes to investing in a land purchase, uh, is there anywhere that you're directing people in Ontario? Is there a place that's really hot at the moment? I think you've got to look further west. You've got to look north. Uh, so look at areas where, so if you take your sort of compass and do, do a one-hour radius, from Cambridge or Brampton or Milton or Mississauga. And most people tend to go east or west on the 401. Consider going north or south. So I uh, like locations like Shelburne, it's 45 minutes north of Brampton. That's a great spot. And I predict that that area is gonna become very popular in the next three to five years. We're gonna see a lot of development happening there. Um, 
areas that are uh, like Tilsonburg area, Woodstock has already enjoyed a lot of gains. Drumbo, there's a lot of development. Plattsville, Air, Paris, but we're already seeing those prices have climbed. Brantford, um, now start going Mount Pleasant Way, Fergus, uh, anywhere that, you know, it's not really a name that you hear a lot, uh, but it's still within a 45 minute to one hour commute. Consider those locations because that's where the next shift is going to occur. Welcome back to Ask the Experts. I'm Dave Callender. My guest is Faisal Suziwala, Canada's number one real estate agent from Remax Twin City Realty. Find out more online at homeshack.com or call 519-624-5555. During the hour, we're talking about what's going on in the market right now, what's topical. And uh, of course, being able to sell your home right now has been getting folks, some record returns. Let's talk about advice for sellers. First off, uh, when's the best time to list, Faisal? We've had uh, no real best time to list a home in the last uh, 18 months to 24 months. Pretty much any time has been a great time to sell your home simply because there's lack of inventory. Traditionally, the spring is always the best time to list. So anytime between, you know, right after March break, which would be typically right about now, to the end of June has been a prime time. Uh, I remember when I went to school, uh, school ended middle of June, uh, people took holidays mid-June to end of June, and then beginning of July, people would be looking to purchase a home, move in by the end of August, get ready for the September market. But since the school year has shifted to end of June, we're finding people on vacations, you know, pre-COVID in the first two weeks of July. Then it's too late to move and make that transition. So our market has advanced into February, March, April, May, June, at the very latest of being the top market. So those of us who were waiting until the summer market are missing out on a large audience. There's always been a little bit of a market in the fall. Corporate relocation typically occurred in September, mid-September to mid-November. So there's a little bit of a spike in that time of the year. And it seems odd, but corporations, executives and whatnot typically are not around the summer and they shift their people typically in the fall. So we do a a fairly large relocation uh, business in the fall. Again, because of COVID, we haven't realized a lot of that going on but and again that may shift again because of that work at home environment but right now is certainly a great time to be on the market people are aggressively looking to purchase and um, there are some caveats on putting your home on the market and we can talk about that um, which is if you're going to sell chances are you're going to sell very quickly I'm advising my sellers not to sell until they purchase a home until they know where they're going. Because if they're going to, there's no question they're going to do very well on the sale of their home. They're going to get a a price that's going to make them extremely happy, but they're going to be very unhappy when they're going to search for a home and realize that they're up against eight to 10 buyers, that they're going to have to come in with, you know, 15%, 20% over the asking price. And they're sticker shocked at that point. So I've asked my sellers to say, okay, buy in March money and sell in April money. Because if all things remain constant, if we don't see an oversupply, if we don't see interest rate spikes, and if we don't see 
government regulation putting a, a stop or a stress test in place, then there's no reason for your home not to sell at the highest possible price, even after. I take that one step forward where I guarantee the sale to my seller so that they're not losing sleep thinking, okay, great, Faisal, you told me to go and buy a house, but I haven't sold mine. So as an agent, I want to give my seller the confidence that they're not going to be stuck holding two mortgages. They're not going to lose sleep over that. And I've put my money where my mouth is by giving them a signed contract that they will get market value, not below market value, market value for their home, which is the expected sale price that I'm expecting as of right now for their home, even though it has not sold yet, to give them the ability to go and negotiate the best possible deal they can get on the next purchase. That's a really great guarantee. And I know that people will be happy to take advantage of it. But for the most part, people have been able to sell their homes well above asking, haven't they? They have been. And, and this is why I'm so confident in giving these guarantees. Now, I've been giving those guarantees for the last 10 years, even when the market wasn't strong. But if I'm going to say to, say to someone, a prospective buyer, that don't worry about it, I better have some skin in the game. And that's why I put that, these guarantees in the right... In the last 24 months, I haven't had to pay out on one guarantee. And I've sold over 400 homes just last year. I never had to buy one of them. Okay, well, that's, that's a pretty good track record. Uh, when you're selling your home, that, that traditionally has been a time for people to consider doing improvements. It's like, oh, I'll redo the bathroom or I'll put in a new kitchen, I'll get more money. But when you actually look at the wisdom of it, what are the best improvements to make before selling? Kitchens and bathrooms have always been the best improvements to make uh, because it's just sort of the heart of the home. Uh, people resonate towards those uh, items. Everything else, like you can paint, you can change flooring. But if the kitchen looks great and the bathroom looks great, it's going to really help sell the house. The shift has occurred in the last 24 months where it doesn't matter. As long as the house isn't falling apart, it's going to sell and it's going to get top dollar no matter what. This is a unique situation, and that's only because there's a lack of supply. When there's a lot of homes on the market, your home has to have something that differentiates it between another. Uh, I used to joke in the past that um, if, if you can't sell your home, put a swimming pool in it. There were, there were times, David, where people would not buy a home because it had a swimming pool. And I used to get quotes from contractors 25 years ago to fill in those pools because nobody wanted a pool because everybody had a cottage. They were away for the summer. The pool was a pain for them to take care of. Today, as cottage country has gotten expensive, people have looked to their yards to be their resort. With COVID being stuck at home, if you had a pool, that was a huge benefit. And homes with swimming pools are getting high premiums. So, you know, if, if, you've, if you've got the ability to spend, say, $50,000 or $75,000, I can assure you that your rate of return on a swimming pool is going to be extremely high. Now, the tr trouble is trying to find someone to install a pool for you. My understanding is that there's a two-year waiting list on even getting a hole dug in to put in a pool right now. Yeah, I have, I've heard the same thing. The other common wisdom is to uh, stage a home before you start showing it. Is that still what people should be doing? What's your view on staging versus not? So most people 
have great furnishings or furnishings that suit their home. I'm not against staging. I take a lot of flack for this because uh, often people say, you know, why don't you stage or why don't you hire staging companies to come in? Number one reason, we, we haven't needed it. We haven't needed to be outstanding in the market because again, there's no product out there. So when you want to differentiate yourself, there's no question when you can stage your home, it looks nice, it smells nice, it, it caters to the senses, it will appeal. But when there's nothing else out there and you're it, regardless of whether or not you're saying, stagers are not going to like me saying this, but whether or not it's staged, it doesn't really matter as long as they can get their bid in and win. Um, there's, there's definitely value in it, but decluttering is very important. I tell people this all the time, even beyond staging, get the stuff packed, get it out of the house, pack it into the garage, into the shed, into the unfinished part of the basement, but get it away from the traffic areas because you're going to be moving anyways. You might as well pack ahead of time and take advantage of the visual and the senses and the subjective value that someone will have when they can walk through a spacious home is far greater than walking through a cluttered home. Uh, with the market as it is, what is your current uh, pricing strategy for your customers? We've been pricing, look, there's no question that we're pricing at a point where we can encourage a bidding war. That's, that's the way. We've shifted our focus and people ask me why, why not just price it at what it's really worth? Because the traditional pricing was, if you wanted 700,000, you asked 750, somebody came in at 675 and you'd end up at seven or seven and a quarter and everybody was happy. We are now catering not to the way we are accustomed to selling. We are catering the market to the way people are accustomed to buying. When we've realized that GTA is coming into town, GTA and areas east of our region have always been exposed to bidding to buy. When I speak to a Toronto buyer or a Toronto agent, the conversation is very different than when I speak to a regional Waterloo buyer. When I speak to a local buyer, the question is, or the, uh, the, the question is, Faisal, you're asking $750 for this home. What do you think I can get it for? The Toronto buyer says, you're asking $750,000 for this home. How much more do you think I need to pay to buy it? Because they're accustomed to bidding to buy. For that reason, if the value of the home is normally, say, $750,000, I would ask $700,000. Between, between $50,000 to $100,000 less than what your expected sale price is, because you're catering to an audience that's accustomed to bidding to buy. And uh, let's let's move over to folks who are looking to to buy. Let's talk about those buyers. Uh, right now, where's the best place to start? How, how do we enter the market? Get your ducks in a row. Get your financing in place. Know that you have your financing, that you don't have to put contingencies in the offer which will immediately put you out. So when you're going to make an offer on a home, know what your upper limit is. Doesn't mean you have to go in with your upper limit, but know what your upper limit is. Have your deposit money ready. Those days of putting a $1,000 deposit or a $5,000 deposit or even a $10,000 deposit when you're making an offer on a home, those days are gone. As an agent, I want to see minimum $25,000 in the form of a bank draft or a certified check. And I know it's a pain to go and get all that, but you need to show the seller that you're in a position to purchase this property, that you have the means to purchase it, 
send a letter, provide a pre-approval or approval letter from the bank because the seller wants to know that, hey, it, it's great that you could come up with the deposit, but are you going to able are you going to be able to close on this transaction in two months from now? Or is this all the money you had and you put it down as a deposit just to win the bid? Then you also want to be in a position where you don't, I don't recommend to anybody to wait until the offer date. You see a house you like, make the offer. The agent is obligated to present that offer to their seller. They can't withhold that offer. I, it doesn't matter. if I don't care if it says we're holding offers for one week. If you like that home, make the offer. Now, make sure you're significantly over asking if that's what the value is of the home. Make sure you have no conditions. Provide a bank draft and give the agent adequate, adequate time and the seller adequate time to consider the offer. Don't give them two hours. Give them at least 12 hours or 24 hours. That shows that you're a serious buyer it shows that you're giving them some time to consider your offer. It allows that agent to advise other buyers and other agents that a preemptive or a bully offer has been submitted without giving the details of it. And it makes for a much smoother negotiation. So, you know, it's very important that you have the right agent consulting and has the ability to negotiate strongly on your half and direct you and assist you to get to that table. That sounds like some great advice, uh, given the fact that you said you can expect a bidding war these days. Do you have any other advice on how to on how to win a bidding war? It's just important that you show your interest um, when when you're working like from agent to agent. When you're working with another agent, have the conversation, meet their expectations, make sure you don't put things in there. If they're saying they want to take their pool table, don't ask for the pool table. They're telling you they want to take, you know, grandma chandelier. Don't ask for grandma chandelier because you're going to upset the seller. So make sure you really familiarize yourself with what the wants are of the seller. Unfortunately, as a buyer, you're at the mercy of the seller making the decision. I also advise buyers and buyer's agents to say to the seller or seller's agent, more importantly, that before you accept an offer, at least give us an opportunity to improve our offer if for any reason what you see on our offer is not acceptable. Doesn't necessarily mean just price. It could be terms, it could be closing date, it could be something about the structure of that offer that you can improve to get your, and all you need to do is say, give me 15 minutes. That way you don't lose the other five or six offers are on, that are on the table. But as an agent, as a listing agent, when a buyer's broker has said to me, Faisal, before you accept an offer, just give me 15 minutes to talk to my buyers to see if they'll come up more, if they'll improve their terms, if they'll remove conditions, because sometimes that's the one little thing that will put them out in the upfront. And uh, finally, quickly, Faisal, before we have to go to break, uh, where, where should we be looking for the best values? Where, where can we find them? Look for the best value where you see an abundance of inventory. So right now, as I mentioned earlier on the show, there's 115 active townhomes for sale. If I was a buyer, forget everything else. Go and buy a townhome. 
chances are that you're going to be able to buy that townhome for relatively close to what the asking price is and not have to bid 50, 100, $150,000 over because there's 115 sellers out there looking to sell their townhomes. Now, if you go to look at a home that's $899, for example, there's not that many homes for sale in that price point. Chances are you're going to pay above a million dollars for that home. And you're going to be up against 15 or 16 other buyers that are trying to bid for that house. Thanks for joining us on Ask the Experts. My guest is Faisal Suzywala of Remax Twin City Realty, online at homeshack.com. And you can call 519-624-5555. Just before the break, we were talking about what buyers should be doing when it comes to a bidding war, how to win. But Faisal, how should a seller handle a bidding war? So I take a lot of heat on this because, you know, I'm blamed for uh, inflating values and getting, you know, $300,000 over asking. And, you know, I understand from a buyer's perspective, that can be very frustrating um, that they, you know, they offered $150,000 over asking and the house sells for $300,000 over asking. But if you're a seller and you're hiring a realtor to sell your home, you want to make sure that that agent has the negotiation skills to get the highest possible price for your home. That's what you're hiring me for, is to get you the highest price. And in order to do that, so much money can be left on the table at the time of negotiation when those offers come in. Let's say there's five offers on the table and we'll use a home that's priced at $700,000. So the, the first offer comes in at seven, the second offer comes in at 750, the third offer comes in at 725, and, and the last offer comes in at 775. So of course, typically you look at the four or five offers and say, okay, this is the one. Seven, 750 may have no conditions, but 775 has conditions in it. So you don't wanna just jump and take the 775 because they've got a condition on inspection, on financing, on solicitor approval, inspection, whatever there may be. Those are all out clauses. Meaning someone can say, ah, I changed my mind. My lawyer didn't like the terms. I found in the home inspection that there was a basement leak or something and they can get out of the deal or they can renegotiate that deal. So at that point, you're sort of looking at that 750 saying, has it hit my target? Is that, was that my goal? Has it exceeded my target or not? But don't simply just accept it. Go back to the 775 first and say, hey, are you willing to remove your conditions? And if the answer is yes, great. Now you've got 775 on the tail. Don't accept it. Then you go back to the 750 and the 725 and the 700 and say, do better. Can you, is there any more money? Is there any more that you can put on the table? And again, this is not very popular when it comes to buyers. In fact, I, like I said, I, I get a lot of hate mail on this, but I'm going to say this. If you're hiring me as a seller, my job is to get you the best and highest price with the best terms for your home and make sure the deal closes. So let's just say the 750 comes up to 780. Then you go back to the 775 and say, do better. And you keep doing that, but you always keep one offer in play. You make sure there's a bank draft on the table because no money, the deal's not going to come together. And you can't say, well, I'll wait till tomorrow. And again, people get very upset because they have to go to the bank and get a bank draft and their offer didn't get accepted. But from a seller's perspective, I don't want to be delivering the news tomorrow morning. David, I sold your house last night, but I have no deposit. 
This is why I insist on having the money submitted on the day of the offer. It's, there's no contract without money being exchanged. So we can't really celebrate tonight if we don't have a check. Well, I guess that's why you are Canada's number one real estate agent. And I keep saying that, but I should double check. I want to be factually accurate. Are you still Canada's number one real estate agent? What are the numbers these days? Well, yeah. So March 3rd, uh, REMAX uh, International announced the stats. So I, I came out at number one in all of Canada for most homes sold, highest sales volume. And there was a new category this year. Well, not a new category, but I ranked in a new category this year, which was the, um, I, I ranked number two in the world for the most homes sales volume for residential real estate. Wow. Yeah, that is that's seriously impressive. We have to find out who number one is and, and get rid of him. But uh, yeah. some guy in California, apparently. <laughs> oh, well, that's still that is incredibly impressive. And uh, uh, the fact that you are an author now can't hurt either. Let's uh, let's take the last couple of minutes of the show and talk a bit more about the book, uh, which, of course, is called The Real Deal. I have, you, a, you have a copy here of it? For it. Here we go. <laughs> And uh, you can get that on Amazon.ca. If someone purchases the book, what are they going to be able to learn from it? It's it's a journal, basically, of my life. Um, and then there's some strategies. There's some inspiration. There's some systems. So there's tips for investors in there. When I started on this journey, I guess, to write this book, it was to leave something in the hands of my kids, because, you know, we don't sit down as parents and say to our kids, here's what I've gone through to get to where I'm at, or these, these are the struggles that I faced. So I want to write about that. And, and, and a lot of it is, or the beginning part of it is just a little journey, uh, journal of my journey getting into real estate, how, what inspired me, how I got into it, um, you know, what, I, what challenges I faced as an 18-year-old with uh, just high school education, trying to uh, get into business looking very young, but being lost and just looking for a mentor who could help me, um, you know, understand and 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 the and and what I went through to get to that point. Then I get into um, the struggles because you know when you when you learn about. You can have your own experiences, but when you can read about others, other people's experiences, you can also understand how to implement and improve on things. So it's about um, it's about um, being creative and modeling creatively excellence that you see throughout your life. Um, there are investment tips that I have in there that I learned personally from investing myself, the do's and the don'ts, the mistakes that I've made and what I've learned from those mistakes and how I came, came out of those mistakes to do better. Um, then I have an entire section called the Susie Wallace system, which talks about, and it's very relevant for realtors who are looking to um, grow their business without having to have a massive team to manage and what to do and how to create networks and how to create uh, systems within their um, brokerage to thrive and help others grow as well. So it was, it, it's just a compilation of everything that I've uh, done. It's basically a tell-all. I haven't left anything out. So if anybody wants to know my secrets, it's all in there. All right. You can pick it up at amazon.ca. And thanks again for being with us on the show. Thank you very much for having me, David. 
If you'd like to uh, learn more about Faisal, grab the book or call him at 519-624-5555. Or, of course, you can go to Faisal's uh, website, which is at homeshack.com. Faisal Susie Walla, my guest today. Join us again next Saturday for more of Ask the Experts right here on 570 News.